Welcome to our brand new St. Luke's podcast known as Your Week with St. Luke's. We have a great weekly series planned for you regarding Job and his story and his relationship with God um, through Dr. E.B. Arnold. We're so excited E.B. is joining us for this entire sermon series. Um, she will be with us each week, and she's going to be making that connection not only about Job kind of rewriting his story and reframing his story, moving from, through, and to with God, but she's also going to be paralleling Job's story to Jesus' story, as well as helping us see our stories being rewritten. So let's listen. Hello, friends, and welcome to our study of the book of Job. Over the next four weeks, we're going to look at Job and how he tells his story so that we may take some lessons in how we craft our story, the story of our walk of faith with God and with each other, and how God has moved us from things, through things, and to things. Now you may think, that's only three lessons, and we have four weeks. And so today's lecture is entitled, Where We Are. Before we can begin to look at where we are moving from, and where we are going through, and where we are moving to, we have to first admit and accept where we are right now. And I believe that Job offers us such an example. So as a brief overview of the book of Job, the book begins very famously that there once was this man named Job, and he was blameless and righteous before God. He did everything right, and God blessed him as a result. He had lots of children. He had a great amount of wealth. He had health and happiness and prosperity and friends. And then one day, God in heaven is talking with the Satan. Now, this isn't the devil figure that we're used to in the New Testament and in our own sort of uh, more modern theology. The Satan is actually just a member of the divine council, and it's his job to push back to question, to challenge, and when human beings slip up, to accuse them, sort of like a prosecuting attorney, and say, I'm not so sure that this person is doing what they ought to be doing. So this Satan goes around the world and finds this man, Job, and he says to God, I think Job may only be faithful to you because you've blessed him so much. I wonder, would he be this faithful under other circumstances? And God says, without a doubt, I place all my confidence in Job. Job is my man. And the Satan says, ah, are you sure about this? And God agrees to test the theory. He says, don't hurt him, but do what you want to his life and see that he doesn't still serve me faithfully and act righteously. And so this divine being, the Satan, is allowed to attack Job's wealth and family in the span of one day. In fact, the narrative makes it sound as if it all happens in the same 10 minutes. Job has messengers come to say, we've lost all the servants in the field and the donkeys and oxen. We've lost all the servants in the pastures 
and all the sheep. We've lost all the servants that were out here in the woods with the camels. And then the last one, all your children were in a house together and a great wind came and brought down the entire house and all your children are dead. Rightly so, Job is in distress, but it says that he doesn't push back on God. He doesn't blame God. He simply says God gives and God takes away. And so God seems pretty pleased that Job has indeed proven still righteous. And the Satan says, oh, not so fast. Because, of course, he's still going to be uh, pretty optimistic because nothing bad has happened to his own body. But human beings, once you get into their body, when you get under their skin, then all of the sudden, that's the breaking point. And God says, okay, then afflict his body, but still you can't kill him. Maybe it's because one can't prove faithful or unfaithful when they're dead. And so part of the story is then Job is covered in sores. And then he really just loses it. Not in an angry way, but he gives in, he succumbs to the deep, overwhelming sadness. There isn't even comfort in his own body anymore. And so three friends come and they sit with him. And then Job opens up to a dialogue between these friends. Now, what's interesting is in the first couple chapters, there's just the narrative, the prose of this bet between God and the Satan and the fallout of what happens to Job. That same prose will appear at the end when it will tell us what the resolution of the story is. But all in between is poetry. Job speaks in poetry. His friends reply in poetry. And there's something really beautiful about the fact that we can take a certain amount of poetic license with that. That all the people who are involved in these conversations are speaking in really big emotions. They're painting with very broad brushstrokes. And as a result, we have a rich conversation that happens between Job and his friends, and then ultimately between Job and God. Now, it's very important now that we've seen the overview of the story, it's important that we understand what kind of a story this is. And so we talk about the genre of Job, and most biblical scholars ad, uh, agree that Job is written as a folktale, or we might even say as a parable. Consider the way it begins. Once there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. So it's very interesting that it even has these sort of fairy tale, folk tale-like qualities. We get an inner calorie sort of story with how great Job is and how perfect his life is. And then this look at the divine realm that's commenting on it, that's questioning it. And so this genre is meant to demonstrate something that the author is trying to get at, a complexity of life that can only be captured in a story, very similar to the parables that Jesus tells in the New Testament. Now, one of the things that's helpful for us to understand this is that because 
it's this type of a parable story, a folktale. It is not a thing that we will distill a theology from. And I'll, sh- I'll demonstrate what I mean about that. Is that we have other portions of the Bible that we read and we think, okay, what is what can we glean from this in understanding about God? Meaning we have to construct it on the other side. Job's story is an expression of a theology that someone already has. In fact, it's not that here's the story, let's figure out what it means. The person writing it already has a meaning. And this theology is that sometimes really bad things happen to really great people. And there's no rhyme or reason for it. Or even it seems like good people attract bad things. In fact, let's remember, it's Job's righteousness that invites all of this tragedy into his life. The Satan didn't observe all of the other people who were just being normal people doing bad things occasionally. No, it was his righteousness that attracted this calamity. And so not only does it not make sense, it's an inversion of it seems the way things ought to be. Not only that, but in the Hebrew Bible, uh, particularly in the Torah, in Deuteronomy, we have a list of covenant blessings that Moses tells the people that if you will only obey the Lord your God. In Deuteronomy 28, he says that if you do obey the Lord your God, all these blessings shall come on you and shall overtake you. You will be blessed in the city and you'll be blessed in the field. Blessed will be the fruit of your womb, your children, the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your livestock, both the increase of your cattle and the issue of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and when you go out. And then further down in verse 11, the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb, in the fruit of your livestock, in the fruit of your ground, in the land the Lord swore to your ancestors to give you. The Lord will open for you his rich storehouse, the heavens to give rain of your land in its season and to bless all your undertakings. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall be only at the top and not at the bottom. Now, it certainly seems that at the beginning The descriptions of Job and his righteousness matched these covenant blessings. Job was covenantly faithful with God and had these blessings. His livestock, his children, his flocks, his herds, he had esteem. All of these things were according to the theology that we would find in Deuteronomy, which says God blesses those who obey. And likewise, Deuteronomy 28 goes on to detail the covenant curses for when you disobey. And it says this in Deuteronomy 28, 20, the Lord will send upon you disaster, panic, and frustration in everything you attempt to do until you are utterly destroyed and perish quickly on account of your evil deeds because you have forsaken the Lord your God. Note 
and I won't list all of them, and some of them are pretty terrible curses, but one of the curses was that the Lord will afflict you with boils and sores of which you cannot be healed. Job even is afflicted with sores covering his entire body. It seems that the writer of Job understands that there is more than just one way to think about how God interacts with human beings according to their righteousness or their evil. And so Job is offering us this alternative theology, not if you obey God, God will bless you. And if you disobey God, he will curse you, but you can be righteous and faithful and have something bad happen to you. Or in Job's case, have a lot of bad things happen to you. And this is really important to remember because this is not just a difference between Job and Deuteronomy, but we find these types of various theologies throughout the Hebrew Bible. In the book of Ecclesiastes, um, in chapter 8, we hear the writer express frustration, and he says in verse 14, there are righteous people who are treated according to the conduct of the wicked, and there are wicked people who seem to get the rewards of the righteous. So it's completely in keeping with the variety of words and language and ideas that we find about God throughout the Hebrew Bible, this kind of variety. Um, It's completely appropriate that we also see that here in Job. But what I want to talk about now is the fact that Job tells his story. And he tells it from the perspective of his present moment. And I think this is something very important for us as we think about telling our story, is that we tend to view the past in light of the present. And this isn't bad. We sometimes look at this and say, well, Job has a little bit of a lack of perspective. So for instance, in Job 3, when his friends sit with him and he finally, after days of being silent and weeping, he finally says, In chapter 3, verses 3 through 10, let the day perish that I was born. And the night that someone said a man child is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, or let light shine on it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it, let clouds settle on it, and the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Don't let anyone rejoice among the days of the year and don't let it be counted among the number of the months. Let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry be heard in it. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none. May it not see the eyelids of the morning because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb and hide trouble from my eyes. Now we think, Job is looking at his birth and his entire life as a curse, even though up till this point, everything has gone well. Up until this point, decades have gone by in Job's life and he's experienced nothing but blessing. And now, as soon as all of these calamities overtake him and his family, now he says, the day I was born was a dark day, and I wish it had never happened. Later in chapter 7, Job goes on to tell his friends this, 
Don't human beings have a hard service on earth? And are not their days like the days of a laborer, like a slave who longs for the shadow and like laborers who look for their wages? So I am allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are apportioned to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I rise? But the night is long and I am full of tossing until dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens and then breaks out again. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone, for my days are but a breath. Wow. Those are really powerful words coming out of deep anguish and distress. And what I am encouraged by is the fact that Job is allowed to express these things. Indeed, at the end of Job, God says that Job has spoken rightly of God. And here, Job takes all of his words from his present and his interpretation of the past, and he gives all of this to God. He lets all of this anguish and distress be expressed. Why? Because we're called to tell our stories. We're not called to tell only the parts of the story that are good. We are not called to forecast the end of our stories. Job can only tell the story so far as he has experienced it. And yet, the story of Job says that Job remained faithful to God. Job still remained a good person, even though he expressed the direness of his situation. Now, those of us who aren't in the middle of it, we could very well look at Job's story and say, look, you had a really good run. You should just be grateful for all of these years that you spent having good fortune and blessings and the fact that now in the span of a couple weeks, things have gotten really bad. Maybe you should put this in perspective. But that is not the truth as Job sees it in the moment. Job acknowledges his present and he is at liberty to interpret his past according to his moment. Now, this is not the only time we will look back and interpret his story based on the present. At the end of Job, Job's fortunes are restored. And in some ways, they're increased even better than he was before. And we don't hear anything directly from Job's mouth. We don't hear any more of this poetry. But we do have a very interesting narrative point. When Job has more children and his family is brought back to its original size, he has three daughters. And it says he named them Jemima, Keziah, and Karen Hepak. Now, what's very interesting is in Hebrew, those words, those names, Jemima means dove, a dove, a symbol of peace. What's interesting is in one of Job's expressions of frustration in chapter 12, he says, the tents of robbers are at peace. Those who provoke God, they're secure. But ask the animals and they will teach you. 
Ask the birds of the air and they will tell you. Ask the plants of the earth and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare to you who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this. In his hand is the life of every human being and the breath of every living thing. Job in that passage is expressing this frustration that it, why is it that people doing wicked things seem to be at peace or indeed are at peace while the righteous like Job are being stripped of everything? And he says, it is God's doing. God has the power to control these things. And so if the robber is at peace and Job is not, God is the one who does this. And so what's interesting is at the end, he reinterprets this. He names his daughter a dove. Peace has come to Job. And he is attributing that peace to God, just as he attributed his suffering to God. It was the difference of what his present was, his present moment. His theology of now, as we like to say, his theology of now when he was in the suffering was God could stop this and I am crying out to God for justice. His theology later, once he has this beautiful baby girl in his arms, says, God has given me this peace. He is at liberty to interpret his past according to his present, no matter how that present changes. Indeed, we can see this pattern with his other daughter's names. His second daughter, Keziah, means cinnamon. Now think about how often throughout the book of Job, one of the words we hear as a common refrain is the word bitterness. Bitter. His plight, his life has become bitter. And now this daughter is sweet, a sweet fragrance, a sweet taste. We have been given bitterness and now we've been given sweet. And then the last one, his last daughter, Karen Hapak, is actually, it's a very funny name because it means a box of eyeshadow. It's very funny. Or a horn filled with coal powder that was used to darken the eyes as a cosmetic. And what's very interesting is that throughout Job, one of the words that we hear that isn't a terribly common word throughout the Hebrew Bible, we find it, I think, once or twice in the prophets and in Psalms, but is the word eyelids. In fact, Job himself in chapter 16, verse 16 says, my face is red with weeping and there is deep darkness on my eyelids. And so how does he revisit that and revise that and reinterpret that? At the end, looking again at this beautiful daughter, this is an eye, our eyelids that are adorned with beauty, with grace, with color, with vibrancy. The eyelids that were weeping in red are now decorated. They are now festive. They are celebratory. And so we see that Job has moved 
that he interpreted his situation and interpreted his past through that situation earlier. And now at the end, he can revisit it yet again. And he retells the story from another perspective that does not cancel out his earlier feelings. But what it does is it offers everything that we have to God right now. And it offers our story to others as it is right now. Now there's another component to Job's story that I find so fascinating. And that is the fact that Job's story is paralleled in the New Testament by none other than Jesus himself. Think about it. Think about how God is betting everything on Jesus. In fact, God speaks audibly to Jesus at his baptism and says, You are my beloved son, and in you I am well pleased. And as soon as God tells Jesus this, Jesus is tempted by a Satan, and he withstands, just as Job did. Both Jesus and Job were afflicted, even though they were declared innocent of any wrongdoing, even though they were both declared righteous they still underwent deep distress and deep anguish. And so I find it really encouraging that we can see this parallel in Jesus's story because Jesus himself does the same thing that Job does. Jesus is at liberty to interpret his past, interpret circumstances according to how he feels about them right then. And I'd like to offer you the story in the Gospel of John, in chapter 11, the story where Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. Now, Jesus receives word that Lazarus is ill, and yet he doesn't go to him. Because, he tells his disciples, it's important for this to be an opportunity that we demonstrate the power of God and that people might believe. And then Jesus is told, that Lazarus has died, and Jesus is still at peace with it. But when Jesus gets to the tomb, when he goes to see the family, he says in John eleven thirty five, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then John tells us that Jesus began to weep. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus purposely didn't go because he knew what he was going to do. He knew that he was going to be the agent that raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus actually not only knows the past, but in this case, seemed to understand what was coming in the future. And yet, Jesus is interpreting the story according to how he feels in that moment. In that moment, he is overcome with grief and he weeps. And it says that some people watching said, see how he loved him. He could open the eyes of the blind. Why couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? So it's very interesting. They knew he had the power to change the circumstances. And yet he is emotionally responding to them in the moment. Even though in a few moments, he will call into the tomb Lazarus come out and Lazarus 
would come out of the tomb alive. But the present moment required that Jesus honor that present moment and acknowledge where he was. He was at his friend's tomb, and that present moment required sadness. Now, just as Job gave all of his sadness, all of his sadness to God, and didn't try to clean it up, didn't try to package it theologically to be nice and clean and optimistic. What I think is lovely is Jesus does the same because as he goes and stands in front of Lazarus's tomb, as he's drying the tears from his face, Jesus prays to God and says, thank you, Father, for hearing me. In this story, God is the one who receives, who receives the pain, who receives the emotion of the right now. And that is a holy thing, that we are not required to clean up the story. And we are not required to paint it rosier or better than it is, but to simply honor the story as it is right now. And that those stories that we tell that Job told, that Jesus told, the stories that we're living, they matter to God and that they matter to the rest of the world because that is our job as the people of faith. We are told, tell your story. Bear witness to where you see God in your life. And sometimes that's okay if we say, I saw God here, but I wasn't particularly happy about it. Or I looked for God here and wondered why I couldn't see him. It is all right for us to offer our story as it is right now. And once we've made peace with that, once we accept where we are, then we can get some perspective. Once we look around and say, okay, this is what it looks like right now. And these are all the thoughts and feelings that accompany it then we have our feet underneath us. We are on solid ground. And then we can start to look and say, where have we come from? What ways has God delivered me in the past? And maybe where am I on my way? But before any of that can happen, we must first acknowledge now and acknowledge that God will receive whatever it is we have to give right now. I look forward to hearing about your discussions of this and look forward as we talk through all that it means to tell our stories, to write our stories, to live our stories. So be well in this week and I will see you next week as we talk about Job and what God moves him from. Hey, everyone. Welcome to our office hours portion of the podcast, Your Week with St. Luke's. We hope you learned something new during the lecture and maybe had an epiphany regarding Job. And so for our office hours conversation, we're really excited to kind of go to the next level. And we're going to be joined by Dr. Karen Scheib. Now, a little about Karen. Karen Scheib is the Emerita Professor of Pastoral Care and Pastoral Theology at Candler School of Theology at Emory University. She is the author of 
many books, including Challenging Invisibility, Practices of Care and Older Women, Pastoral Care, Telling the Stories of Our Lives, and Attend to Stories, How to Flourish in Ministry. What's exciting is her current research focuses on attending to life stories and creative writing as a spiritual practice, which is sort of what we're trying to get all of us to do in this coming month. Now, she is also a retired elder in the United Methodist Church. She's a part of the North Georgia Annual Conference. She lives on Skidaway Island near Savannah and enjoys biking, bird watching, and of course, creative writing. And so we're excited that she is going to be joining us. Now, each week, she's going to be talking about helping us tell our stories and what shapes the stories of our lives. She's going to be going in depth with us, and we're going to be able to see how God has been working in our lives to, like Job, move us from, through, and to. So welcome, Karen. We're so glad that you are with us. Why don't you give us sort of a first glimpse of this idea of our stories being the the life that we reveal to the world and who we are and what we believe. Great. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be here. Well, from the moment we are born until the day we die, we are awash in stories. We're surrounded and tangled in, in a way, in a web of stories. Our parents imagine stories about us before we are born. We continue to tell stories about those we love even after we die. And every day of our lives, we're, we're living out the stories we are. Stories are woven into the fabric of human life. And we, as human beings, are storytellers. However, we're often unaware of how active a role we take in forming our own stories. You know the saying, that, well, that's the story of my life. When something happens bad that happened before, uh, you're, I'm late again, that's the story of my life. As if somehow the story is happening to me and I'm not an active participant. I'm not shaping it in some ways. But embedded in this notion is that we are simply actors and not authors. But both neuroscientists who study the brain and narrative psychologists who study identity challenge this notion that we are passive actors in our stories, but rather believe that we are active authors, that we form the stories of our lives, both consciously and unconsciously, throughout our lives. So I love this, Karen, because we've been leaning in all of 2021 to this sort of metaphor of story, um, that mm-hmm. the idea of storytelling and story writing, looking at the characters of our story and really helping us get a different perspective on scripture. Um, and we kind of moved into this sort of narrative theology or an understanding mm-hmm. of God being active, writing our story, kind of that divine playwright that theologians talk about. So now we're moving with this particular sermon series into how we've been writing our stories all along and how we have been active and God is active. So could you share with us, is there something unique about human beings that make us storytellers? Well, yes, this is where the work of some of the neuroscientists is so interesting. And one in particular, Antonio Damasio, basically says that our brains are wired for story, that our brains are designed to shape experience into story form. That's how we make sense out of all of the input that we get in any one day. If you think about going through a day and if you had to catalog everything you saw or heard or felt, it would be a jumble of information. And the way our brains organize that to help us learn and adapt to our environment is through stories, according to these these scientists. 
So I one way I like to think about it is imagine we have a distant ancestor who sees a shape somewhere off in the distance and knows that that shape over there is a saber-toothed tiger, and that means danger. Well, how does she know that? So probably some ancestor knows the animal is a threat because she heard a story. And I've been thinking about the cave paintings on the walls, and, and those paintings themselves are stories. So stories aren't always words. They can be in pictures. But very likely, those paintings were accompanied by stories told around the fire. So our ancestor hears a story, and it helps her not only navigate the present moment by getting out of the way, but shapes her actions in the future. Maybe she'll avoid that part of the forest. <laughs> She's less likely to encounter that danger, and she'll share the story with others. So the scientists actually believe that stories serve a kind of um, evolutionary function for us to help us navigate into the world. So that's one way to think about what's unique to us. So I love that last night, I was just in a group last night where we talked about the physiology too of stories in our lives and how if, if you read some of the doctors today, they talk about how your physical body actually holds your stories and tells a story. And we were talking about like, what, what do your physical bodies tell you of the story that you're in now that maybe look back at your past, for instance. I, I was like, my arthritic ankle you know, tells me about when I took antibiotics for about two years being sick because I was afraid to talk about to the staff parish relations committee that there was mold in the house and which says something about my fear of authority and trying to people please. So, yeah, I think I think this story in our lives is so integrated with our mind and our ancestors looking back, looking forward, but also our body. So so tell me, how do stories in other ways function in our lives? Well, I want to pick up a, just a minute on that notion that, that stories are not just words. We tend to think when we say stories as words, but clearly infants communicate things to us before they have words, and they are telling a story through their bodies. So I think it's helpful to think of embodied stories and that we, as once we learn to speak, which doesn't happen till around age two, then we can communicate in a different way. But we are living out our stories even when we're pre-verbal. So I think that notion of the story being sort of within us in a very embodied sense is important. Well, and isn't, Karen, isn't that interesting too, as pastors, we embody, you know, Christ, God embodied his story of love in Christ, and we embody it every time we have communion or we take baptism. So I love that whole, whole notion. So yeah, how else do stories function for us? Well, stories communicate who we are. So not only do stories help us navigate the external world and sort of make sense of all of this information we take in, but it it we share who we are by telling stories about ourselves. And there's a quote by uh, narrative psychologist Dan McAdams that I particularly like. If you want to know me, you must know my story, for my story defines who I am. And if I want to know myself to gain insight into the meaning of my own life, then I too must come to know my own stories. And the way I think about this is that I could tell you where I'm from and what I do for a living and how old I am and how tall I am. And I probably wouldn't tell you how much I weigh, but I might tell you other things <laughs> that you would know sort of facts about me. But if I tell you a story about me, like the time when I was two, which is actually a story I inherited, I don't remember, I ate a blue flower that my father had been waiting for this flower to bloom for months, and it finally bloomed. 
my mother went in to call my father about the blue flower and I toddled in it too with blue flower over my face because I had eaten a flower. So that tells you something about me, right? And Mm -hmm. it's actually a story I inherited. I think of it as my story, but it was told to me by my, my parents. And I don't remember the incident. And I think as a child, I thought about it was something that I had done wrong. Um, But later I realized I'm really a curious person and I love beautiful things and I love nature. So if I share that story with you, I tell you much more about myself. Um, And this is what Dan McAdams says that we have, we each have a kind of, we have these stories of our lives. He calls them a personal myth and they're unique to each of us. And they bring together different parts of ourselves, like for me, curiosity or love of nature or love of beautiful things into a whole. And the stories shape how we ex- interpret past experiences. It shapes how we experience the present, but also what we anticipate for the future. So those are some of the ways that stories shape our shape us. And, and our stories are not, as you said, we're, we're, authors of our stories, but we're perhaps co-authors because our families shape our stories, our culture shapes our stories. Um, And certainly as Christians, we believe that God is a co-author in our story as well. So so how do you think our life stories get formed? I mean, do they just kind of fully appear, fully formed one day? How does that work? Yeah, that would be nice to think they might. As as a person who's actually trying to write stories these days, it would be nice if I could a story would be fully formed. But it takes a lot of work to come up with a story to write a story, and the same is true of our lives. They are formed over the course from 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 childhood. We, as I said, we are absorbing the stories of our family, both consciously and unconsciously. The stories that are told about us, the stories we hear about our grandparents. Um, the books that we read as children, um, the the stories of, I grew up in California uh, on the coast, that location sort of shapes my story, that context. So over the course of our lives, we're taking in all of these different stories that we, in a sense, quilt together, to, to borrow a different kind of metaphor, into our own stories. And by the age of two, we begin to tell, children begin to tell simple stories about themselves. And by the age of five, um, children know how stories work, and particularly lit, like written or literary stories. I don't know if you have children, but if you tell a story to a child, one they want to, to you to tell over and over again, try changing the ending. <laughs> they right, know how right. the story is supposed to go, right? And they will tell you. And by the time we're adolescents, uh, that time when we start questioning things, we take a much more active role in our own stories. But we we are constructing and revising our stories over the whole course of our, of our lifetime. And and as you said, we we open ourselves to to God's presence, helping us sort of develop that story in a particular way. So you mentioned that we are, you know, co-writing the story with mm-hmm. with other people, with other experiences, with God. Um, so, so how does that work? Um, we're not the sole authors of our story necessarily, but are we? Tell me more about that. Well, actually, now that as again, now that I'm actually that I'm, I've been. My, my own writing life has been a writing academic work and then nonfiction. And now I'm actually trying to be a fiction writer. And I realize as I'm writing a particular story, I'm drawing from all kinds of sources. 
And we do the same thing. It's a good parallel. So in a way, I am creating a story or I create the story of my life, but I'm drawing from events that have happened to me um, in terms of my own life story. I'm drawing from the stories that my family has told about me and to me and about the family. I was born in 1954. That shapes my story. The, the significant events of my life were the Vietnam War and in the um, the civil rights movement and you know events in 1968. For children growing up now, there'll be different events that will be a significant part of their life story. So one author talks about this as what he calls the narrative environments, or it's sort of the context of our story. So we draw from those contexts. If I had grown up in South Korea or in Britain, I would have a different context and that would shape what my story looks like. So I am the author and I'm choosing which bits go in, but I'm not making it all up in a sense. I'm drawing on other sources, just like any good writer borrows from other writers. We sort of borrow in a sense. And, and we draw on the stories of our faith tradition as well. So we are active authors. Um, but we are in, as I said earlier, a web of stories, so we, we can't help but sort of weave our own together from all of these raw materials that are a part of us. You know, I... Go ahead. I was just going to ask you, so about if you had a favorite story as a child that you read that you think shaped you in the same way. This is often a, a question I ask when I do these workshops or with my students. You know, it's interesting if I had, when I think about the stories that shaped me, I was a kid in the 70s. So were they books? Yes, but they started as TV shows because, you know, those were the latchkey kids. So Laura Ingalls Wilder watching Little House on the Prairie uh, and then reading all her books, I absorbed them. That strong kind of defiant rebel, but incredibly compassionate sticking up for the underdog completely Mm -hmm. defined not so much my childhood because I was too shy, but really reframed like you're talking about my story moving into middle school and high school. Like I wanted to be more assertive and I wanted to stand up and speak for what was right because of those Mm -hmm. stories, which which leads me to one of the the questions that that I think is really interesting. What happens when the stories we tell ourselves um, don't work for us anymore? Um, when we have to kind of uh, reshape that those stories, what do we do with that when the world no longer works for us as adults, the stories we told as children? And that, that can be difficult. In the uh, narrative psychologists like Dan McAdams and um, William Randall believe that we're, we're actually revising our stories all along um, uh, and maybe throwing out bits that don't work. But sometimes we have some kind of crisis that makes us particularly aware that the story we've been telling ourselves or the story we've carried about ourselves doesn't work anymore. Sometimes it's a story that we've inherited, a kind of outside-in story from our family, that maybe we're the shy one or we're this way or that way, and it just it no longer fits. Or maybe we grow up in um, a religious tradition that tells us women can't be preachers, but we feel a call to preach, or um, that um, we've, as uh, you know, larger stories about our identity, whether it be sexuality or race or other things, larger stories from the culture that constrain us. But it, it and it, and it, it may be something as being an artist is not 
a good profession because it's not practical. Maybe it's something like that. But as, you know, as adolescents and young adults, as we come to kind of own more of our own stories, we begin to say, well, these stories we've inherited don't work for us. And I, as a seminary professor, I saw this a lot with students who grew up in particularly conservative religious traditions that either prohibited them from ministry or were critical because of their sexual identity or just their image of God was punishing and not loving and that that didn't match their experience of who they were and that there was then a conscious effort to have to sort of reject that story and craft a new one. And that can be a difficult process. And I actually think that any good form of therapy really is a kind of process of rewriting our story, but we can also do that ourselves through sharing our stories. Journal writing is a good way to do that, to work on revising our stories. Do you think that there are some things in your own life? Um, is there a, a master narrative or a master story that gets reshaped or or is it this continual reconstruction and and revision? Well, I do think that we have a sense of identity and I, a kind of, there. That we have to have some cohesive sense of self over time. Now, there are certain psychological theories that, that give us a notion of we have a sort of a braided self, that we have sort of multiple selves, but that we don't, we experience ourselves as a coherent whole, an I, but who that I is changes over time. And in one of my personal stories is that I, when I was a child, I was hospitalized between three times between the ages of five and 10 for different things. The first was tonsils, that was normal, but two other sort of unusual illnesses. And I became sort of named in the child as the kind of this, the sickly child or the weak child. Well, I'm now 67 and I'm the only remaining member of my immediate family. My sister died at 65, my father died at 72, and my mother at 46. If I keep carrying that story of the weak one or the sickly child, it simply doesn't reflect reality. And it's likely to constrain my ability to kind of move forward in a healthy way into the future. So I had to, I had to sort of reject that story in a sense and say, this isn't this isn't who I am. On the other hand, I've always been curious since I was two and ate the flower, obviously. And that shapes, and so I like learning new things and that's why I'm trying to write fiction. And, and so that sense of curiosity, I feel like that is a continuing theme and how it expresses itself differently. Um, and, you know, as I get older, I'm probably not gonna be curious about things like what it feels like to jump out of an airplane. That might not be a good thing to do as I get older, but. <laughs> <laughs> you never not. know. You never know. So you this is, know. that's right. So thank you so much. This has been a great sort of first movement um, in this office hours conversation. I think we're going to see this happening to Job. Job is going to really re have to reframe his understanding of God, his relationship with God and himself mm -hmm. and the world and even his friends. Um, so mm -hmm. I hope that over the next week, um, our listeners will be doing that as well. Be thinking about kind of those ways 
ways in which their stories have changed because of um, culture or context or experiences. I want to encourage everyone who's listening, don't forget to pick up the hard copy of your study guide at church, um, or you can download a digital copy. Use it for your writing your thoughts um, and, and use it for a way to begin to sort of write some of the stories that God's been writing in your life. Um, Until next week, remember, all of you who are listening, uh, the story of St. Luke's is not the same without you.